This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, so we're going to have a panel discussion on the psychology of zombies, and this is going to include topics like psychological disorders, fear and anxiety, motivational theories, social psychological concepts, and morality. So there should be something for everyone. Um, hopefully, you know, you're going to hear something that's going to resonate with you. If you don't, please feel free to ask questions at the end. We'll leave about 25 minutes or so for questions at the end. So let's get started with um, Professor Lawson Collins. Laura, why do you think we like horror movies and apocalyptic movies? Okay, well, I think that really there are several different things that go into this. And I think the first one is something that taps into a, just a really basic uh, brain structure. Um, so our brains have been wired to pay attention to negative things. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but um, we pay a lot more attention to negative things in our environment than to positive things in our environment. Um, so if you guys have noticed when you're driving down any of the highways and you see an accident, everybody cranes their heads to look to see what's going on. And the more you know, the larger the accident, maybe the more gruesome the accident, uh, the more we want to see what's going on. Um, so this isn't just in real life, but this is, you know, movies make this a little bit safer as well. And I think that this taps into uh, deep-seated, um, pre-wired need to seek out the negative. And we're wired to seek out the negative because it kept us safe in our environment thousands and thousands of years ago. Paying attention to the negative is what kept us alive. Um, so I just wanted to hand it over to Nick for a second because Nick had wanted to talk about the amygdala, and that's really part of, that's the primary structure that we're talking about, the structure that helped to keep us alive in situations that were very dangerous. Laura, thank you. Um, I don't know if you guys could see too well out on the campus. Maybe, maybe everybody in the back can, but imagine if we had hundreds of zombies walking towards campus, coming for us, coming to eat us, coming to destroy us. And there's guns outside, there's troops outside shooting at them, and the zombies don't fall down, they just keep coming. And they start walking up the L ramp. What would we do? We would run. We would run, or, or beat them, or, or kill them. We would do something. And, and what alerts us to do that is the amygdala. So the amygdala are two almond-shaped structures in your brain that basically assess danger and assess threat. So if you've ever been startled or a hand on your back and you jump, it's because your amygdala is being triggered. So the amygdala uh, triggers the sympathetic nervous system, which controls your fight-or-flight syndrome, which essentially is adrenaline that gets created by epinephrine and norepinephrine, which gives you the energy to fight off stuff. Uh, and to run. So again, and the amygdala would also help you recognize why everybody's running and screaming too. You'd be able to understand that as well. And to be honest, I think, like Laura was saying, I think that's kind of why we like zombie movies because we like getting scared. I think we like the adrenaline. And and you said maybe, and and you might talk about how how it's when it's all over, it's it's fun. But I think people who love horror movies like getting scared and like the the adrenaline rush. It's like a drug. And, and that's what I would say. Uh, and then I think there's also one other part of the brain that zombies have wrong with them, and that's the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is the part that tells you when you've had enough to eat. 
And as you know, zombies can't get enough to eat. And they keep eating. And they're never satisfied. So? Okay, yeah, so... Go ahead, Laura. Sorry. Um, so what Nick was saying about, um, about then how that all translates into why we like the horror movies, why we like apocalyptic movies, um, I think that this really goes to the adrenaline rush. You know, when you go to see a horror movie, you're able to get an adrenaline rush, but it's a safe adrenaline rush, and that adrenaline rush can act almost as a drug. And the nice thing about the horror movie is that it is completely safe, and when you are done, you have complete relief. So you didn't get eaten by a zombie. You know, you didn't get killed. You just saw people getting killed in the movie. So we're wired for that attention. We get the adrenaline rush, and then we get relief, and that conditions us to enjoy the experience with that relief. Um, the last thing that I wanted to say here about this question, then I'll, I'll stop, um, is that I think that apocalyptic movies help us to think about a simpler time. You know, our time right now in 2014, things are pretty complicated for just about everybody. Technology has made our lives a lot richer, but also a lot more complicated. And when we think about an apocalyptic situation, it comes it becomes much simpler. It becomes more about life and death as opposed to all of the complicated decisions that we have to make. And I think that there's some um, kind of draw to that, you know, that we don't have in our own time today. Thanks, Laura. Okay, and you guys kind of talked about um, safe ways to have this experience. Now, um, young Shim, um, Professor Shim would talk a little bit about fear, anxiety, and PTSD related to the zombie phenomenon. Okay. Do you like a zombie movie? Yeah. <laughs> it makes you fun or it makes you scared? Both? Yes. Yeah, that is correct. For me, personally, it makes me really scared. So, when people get scared, what happens to people? Okay, I'm sure you experience some scared, you know. What happened? Don't think, okay? Then what else? Run. Run, okay, and run? Okay, shatter, okay? Yeah, those experiences related to worry, right? So when you feel worry, is it zombie threat to you? Yes. Somehow, yes. Zombie somehow threat to you and threat to individual and society. So when people get worried, when people get threat, what happened? They experience some curiosity too. Yes, that's good. So they experience anxiety, right? What is anxiety? You guys learn in psychology. What is anxiety? Yes, fear. Fear about something. Fear about unknown. Fear of uncertainty, you know, or fear of death. Actually, zombie you know, kick it in our like fear of death, you know, internal, you know, you guys know Freud, Freud talk about fear of death, yeah, jumping is related to fear of death, so that, you know, maybe unconsciously, consciously, we have fear, we have anxiety, and that causes a lot of stress, right, yeah, so jumping is a societal phenomenon, somebody is fascinated by that, Somebody get like a fear or anxiety experience, right? Because it's uncertain. Maybe they're going to kill you. You know, what if you get infected by that, right? Then what is the PTSD? PTSD symptom. Maybe some of you know that or learn already. 
you know, some people get excessive worry, uh, maybe, uh, you know, worry about the uncertainty. They get experienced physically and uh, mentally, right? So PTSD, well, what is the symptoms of PTSD? Maybe uh, cannot concentrate, maybe re-experience worrisome, uh, you know, thought, maybe nightmare, uh, cannot sleep. So when you uh, excessively worry about get infected by zombie, you know, or fear of a death, that causes you high anxiety, high fear, and maybe experience PTSD. So obviously the zombie phenomenon, you know, deeply uh, embedded, you know, in our culture, and then that causes emotional uh, trouble, okay? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit and move on to some social psychological stuff. So, Professor Baker, how does this topic of zombie apocalypse and zombies relate to confirmation bias and false beliefs? Okay, uh, thank you. Um, first off, a confirmation bias is a tendency to search out information that we already believe in. Okay, so I look for information that confirms what I'm already thinking. Now, in the book, this is demonstrated by the um, by those that we depend on, namely the government and how they were thinking, this is a war, and we need to fight this war in conventional methods. And they tried those conven conventional methods over and over, and it didn't work, right? It, they tried it again, it didn't work. Same thing on the individual level. This is how I'm supposed to survive, and this is what I need to do, and it didn't work. Now, this type of thinking, uh, this, this confirmation bias, happens in the real world as well, and on just about any academic campus as well. Um, if you're in a class of mine, or maybe with some of my colleagues, we might assign a research paper, right? And if uh, my class, typically I say, hey, pick something you're really interested in that relates to the class that you're in. Now, uh, let's say, for example, this research paper, you might be interested in uh, video games. So you're like, hey, I'm going to check out the link of playing violent video games and the impact on pro-social behavior, right? So do uh, violent video games cause violent behavior? So you go ahead and you go into our academic, academic database, you do a Google search or whatever it is, and you're going to find peer-reviewed literature, right, that supports both claims from reputable journals. You're going to find information that says, hey, um, it either supports my hypothesis that they do uh, cause violence in, in behavior after playing these games or that they don't from a reputable journal. Now, the thing is, is do we actually seek out and review the hundred or so results that come back? that show that there's a difference of information? Or do we just stop at the first article that actually supports our hypothesis, that, aha, I'm right. I know I have peer-reviewed information that says I'm right, empirical data. So we don't really think to go ahead and look at all the information that's available. Now, I found information that confirms my initial belief. This is very easy to hold on to, so I don't need to search any further. So this confirmation bias then enables us to strengthen the potential for false beliefs, the second part, right? So the confirmation bias helps us strengthen the false belief that we have. Now, false beliefs are basically misconceptions based on some faulty reasoning, all right? It's a misconception based on some faulty reasoning. Think of what you know about Santa Claus, okay? How is that? It's based on the premise that what? Parents are telling the truth, there's no kids in the audience, right, little ones? Yeah? So, you know, parents tell the truth. The uh, media tells the truth. These, these TV shows are, are accurate and factual. Now, let's be clear. False beliefs are not knowledge. 
Okay, if there's any Seinfeld fans left out there, um, you might remember George Costanza saying, it's not a lie if you believe it to be true. Um, well, that's not factual, right? It's actually delusional, which is actually a part of a system of false beliefs. Now, to kind of bring this point home here, if, if I think, the, if, if you know the world is round, I think it's flat, and I believe it to be flat. Does that change it? Does that, is that factual knowledge? No, it's a, it's a false belief. So how this occurred in the book is that there were these zombies, and zombies don't exist. So we found a new reason for it. We called it um, rabies in the book is what they called it. Now, I find this excuse, and I excuse it away. This doesn't change the fact that it's zombieism, not rabies. And all I'm left with now is a window that is closed for me to effectively done something about it. So how this confirmation bias and false beliefs work is when we only look for information that we know, we hold on to those false beliefs. And any attempt at positive change often gets thwarted. And then this becomes a, a, a very dangerous state to be in when we're not open or receptive to change or new information. Thanks, Mitch. Okay, kind of to add to this discussion on um, some of the social psychological piece, uh, Laura, could you talk about how groupthink plays a role in how cognitive dissonance is related to our reactions? Yeah, so this is very much related to what uh, Dr. Baker was just talking about. Um, groupthink is the tendency uh, for entire groups to all conform to one another and for everybody to all make the same decisions. So I don't know if you've ever been in a group of friends before where you, you all want to go see a movie, okay? Maybe it's a larger group of friends. And there's a movie that, um, you know, maybe someone brings up, and it's a movie that you really, really don't want to see. But as everybody starts agreeing, as everybody starts conforming, um, then it's a lot easier to just go along with the group. Now, when this phenomenon happens and you're making a decision, an important decision, then that's called groupthink. And for any of you who saw the movie form of the book, um, there was a scene where um, one of the, the characters was explaining why Israel had not fallen. Does anybody remember why Israel did not fall? Yeah, they made the wall, but how did they know to make the wall? How did they know to close off the city? Do you guys remember? Right, okay, so, so some of this was absolutely they had already started, right? Okay, but they knew to finish it before anybody else did. They knew that there was something apocalyptic happening before any other country did, which allowed them to finish things up and close their city off. Do you remember what it was? Does anybody remember? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It was a transmission that they heard, and it was a transmission about zombies. And if you guys can imagine, you know, if someone got a transmission today about zombies, it would be laughed off by everybody, you know, if, it was, if this was a military base. Um, but what the character in the movie had said was, you know, we all believed that the Holocaust couldn't happen, that that, that was ridiculous. There's no way that something like that could happen. And then it happened. And we finally decided that we were going to, um, when we made our decisions, we would use the tenth man. So this idea of the tenth man, the idea is, is that you have a group of people, of ten people, 
And if everybody in that room agrees, okay, well, this is ridiculous, it's not zombies, it is the role of the tenth man to be descendant. You know, the role of the tenth man to say, I am going to explore the opposite of what everybody else in the group believes. So it is making a conscious decision to not follow groupthink and to not follow what Mitch was talking about, which is the confirmation bias. You know, when you're in a group, everybody's confirming one another. It's not even just you going out and confirming it. It's everybody else in the group is, conform is confirming one another. So Israel has made the conscious decision to use the tenth man. So, thank you, Laura. Very interesting. Okay, kind of piggybacking on this, and I think Mitch, you might have already touched on it a little bit, but why, in the presence of contradictory information, do we still hold on to old beliefs or even strengthen them? Okay. Um, most simply, is that we like to be right. Uh, um, it feels good to be right. And uh, Catherine Schultz, uh, a journalist, she said that we learned very early on in our development to not make any mistakes, to be perfect, to, to become perfectionist, in fact. Now, to go one step further, until we realize we're wrong, being wrong actually feels a lot like being right. And if we're able to avoid realizing that we're wrong, we'll simply continue to feel right. Okay? Now, holding on to false beliefs, right, even in the presence of other information that contradicts what, uh, what I already think, you have to bring up the concept of theory of mind. Now, this is just knowing that others have thoughts different than our own, right? That it enables us to infer uh, the beliefs and intentions of other people, okay? So basically, uh, if this is a scary thought, I can reflect on what I think is going on in your mind, and you can reflect on what you think is going on in mine. So why am I doing this? Why are you doing that? Now, a recent paper by a gentleman, Brendan, uh, Brendan uh, Nyham, uh, he looked at the effective, uh, effectiveness of messages promoting vaccine use. Okay, so I'm taking it out of the book. I'm bringing it to a, a recent paper that was uh, presented. So, you know, messages that, uh, about promoting vaccine use in children. Now, his, his colleagues, uh, you know, did a variety, studied a variety of people and for a variety of reasons of whether they were going to use vaccines or not. I'm going to focus on those with the strongest beliefs against the vaccines. So those who were like emphatic, I'm not going to use vaccines for my kids. And the primary reason was that the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, caused or was linked to uh, autism. Okay? That has since empirically been refuted um, by many uh, different credible sources. So what he did was he showed corrective information, right? So we have this belief that uh, the vaccine causes autism. He showed corrective information from the CDC Centers for Disease Control, a reputable source, on that this doesn't cause this. Uh, there is no link, no credible link, and a bunch of uh, information regarding that. Now, this actually somewhat reduced... Right? It was somewhat effective. It somewhat reduced the arguments that these people held. So, for example, if I hold a belief that the MMR causes um, autism, you show me incredible information that says, no, it doesn't. I somewhat say, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe it doesn't. But the interesting thing what they found was that it actually reduced their intent to vaccinate their children even further. Okay, so you showed me information and then say, hey, Mitch, are you going to go ahead and now vaccinate your kids? I say, heck no. Now I'm absolutely not going to do that. So why? Well, what happened was it brought to mind other reasons. 
right? Now there's other side effects. Maybe it's a seizure. And, and you can understand maybe some of the medical scares. But what actually they brought to mind was very unique things, like the motivation behind the politicians or the pharmacist companies for us to require the vaccinations. So we can come up with a reason to justify a justification effort as to why we shouldn't do this. Now, um, a recent case in point is uh, Jay Cutler's wife, Kristen Cavallari. She recently came out and said, ah, we're not going to vaccinate our child because it's, uh, of the link to autism. And then she had a data set on this. I can only imagine the amount of contact she must have got in mail saying that there is no connection and whatnot. And she started doing the talk show circuits the day later, and it was asked this question. And she said, okay, maybe um, it's not that it causes autism. Maybe there's some information that doesn't show the link, but there's other reasons, and we're still not going to do it. Okay? Now, for those of you who are understanding, uh, as I'm ta- saying this, and kind of understand the first part, the confirmation bias piece um, that's an unintended example of confirmation bias I guess I just use one example to confirm my my thesis but uh, be that as it may um, the idea is that you know she came up with another rationale as to why she wouldn't do this such a thing now now herein lies the problem is that we can easily come up with excuses for things right I have no way of knowing what's going on in your mind, and you have no way of knowing what's going on in my mind we can only infer based on our behaviors that we're going to do Now, the thing is we often think we're right, okay? So I don't need to ask you, hey, why are you not going to vaccinate your child? I already think I know the reason, so I never go ahead and do it. I already know. Now, there's other areas, too. I mean, we have this in psychology and education. There's the concept of learning styles that's uh, perpetuated, uh, you know, that that the discipline of education holds on to the notion that there's different learning styles, um, you know, visual thinkers, auditory thinkers, and whatnot, even though the empirical evidence is not reliable, okay, that, and even more recent uh, reviews are critical of the validity and utility as a theoretical basis for education, but yet we still talk about these. In, In your classes, people still might ask you, what is your learning style? How can I better serve you? There's no credible evidence that says that this is the best way to teach people. Um, So keep in mind, though, when you're critically evaluating information, right, open, fully objectively, uh, or as as objective or value-free as you can be, it's not a confirmation bias. Uh, If I take the information coming from this side and that side, it's not a confirmation bias. It doesn't guarantee that we'll be right, but at least minimizes the likelihood that we're going to hold on to those original beliefs and we're more open to new information and actually being able to change our mind when credible information or relevant information is before us. Thanks, Mitch. Those are really good examples um, of some of the concepts. I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about uh, motivational theory. And so, Professor Shizas, how might Maslow's theory explain what's happening in the zombie attack? Well, it's unfortunate, but uh, I, I will say that Maslow is written all over this book. Um, think about the zombie apocalypse, okay? And, and so all people care about is surviving, and which is essentially the most primitive need that we have that Maslow says. So Maslow has this hierarchy of needs, five of them. Physiological, which is your food and water. Safety, keeping yourself alive. Friendships and belongingness is next. And if you have that, then you go to esteem, feel good about yourself. And then finally, you can start becoming a creative person and pursuing your inner, ta- your inner talents. So, but what does all that mean when you're running from zombies and scouring for food? You could care less about friends. 
maybe only if they're going to give you food. Or you could care less about discussing the philosophies of life. You're looking to basically survive. And so there's a story in the book about a family that travels to Canada. And I guess thousands of families were traveling up to Canada because the United States was depleted of food, people were dying, and they said, let's go to Canada because it's cold up there and zombies appear to freeze in the cold. How are we going to survive in the cold? I don't know. We'll figure it out. But right now we need to survive. So they get up there around the fall. Everybody's got their car full of food, gas tanks, gas containers, all their medical supplies and everything. And so everybody's getting along. People are making friends at the campsite in the forest. But then after a while, food starts running out. People start stealing food from each other. People start robbing each other. People start hurting each other. And then it starts to get cold. And people start stealing each other's blankets. People strike, try getting into each other's cars, stealing their gas. And then people are standing outside of their cars with guns to protect themselves and to protect their food. And then it starts to freeze. And, so, and, and, and in the story, if you guys read it, I think a dad steps outside of the car and shoots somebody who tries to break into their car. And so you might think, man, this is crazy. I would never kill somebody. I would never do that. Maslow would say, we hope that will never happen to you. But under a situation like that, it might. Um, and so to, to get even a little more gruesome, people start to freeze to death. And people starve to death. And what do people do? What do you think people did in the story when they were starving? The ones that survived were starving. There are skin and bones, and there's dead people around. And they, ain't got, and they don't have anything to eat. <laughs> They're going to move to cannibalism, which is kind of what the book insinuated. And so I think to myself, what would Maslow say if he read this book? Abraham Maslow, by the way. Uh, he would say, you know, th this is unfortunate, and I hope we never have to experience anything like this. And I don't think we will. But if we did, this is what would motivate our behaviors. And then I think to myself, man, would I ever eat somebody? I think I'd eat everybody in this room. <laughs> now, really, ask your neighbor real quick. Would you, do you think you would ever eat somebody if you ever had to? I mean, it's a strange question. I don't know. You know, and you might say no, well, I'd rather die, but I think Maslow would say you probably would rather live. So anyway, um, that's what I wanted to share about uh, motivational theory. I think that's motivating a lot of the behaviors that we see on there, basically people trying to stay alive. I, I think uh, somebody even uh, beat some of the zombies' heads in with baseball bats, and in the beginning of the story, she was happy, talked about good times, and then you could see over time, over the winter, this person got pretty hardened and will do whatever they need to to uh, to survive. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, great point about how much the situation will impact our behavior. In spite of what we think we may or may not do in certain situations, the situation has a lot of power over what we do end up doing. Okay, so I'm interested in this question because I don't know the answer to it, Laura. Um, what is the uncanny valley, and how does it relate to how we feel about zombies? Okay, so I was hoping that this question would come up. Okay, so. Has anybody, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Uncanny Valley. Two. <laughs> Three. Okay. Okay, so it's this really interesting concept. Um, it was developed by a Japanese robotics engineer. And what they found was that humans, we, all humans, we like robots that are kind of like us, but not too similar to us. 
You know, so if you guys ever saw the movie Wall-E, how many people have seen Wall-E? Okay, so the, the robot, we start to really empathize with the robot, and we, we really project a lot of our own feelings and emotions. Wow, this robot's so cute. You know, he has all these emotions. He's in love. You know, and that's great when he looks like he does, and they're able to do kind of, kind of like facial expressions, you know, but it's still clearly a robot, okay? We feel warmth towards Wally in the movie. However, once you start making robots look more and more and more like humans, you would think, well, yeah, we would like them more because they look more like us, okay? We tend to be pretty self-centered species. We tend to project ourselves on other people. So, hey, the more robots look like us, maybe the more we'll like them. And actually, something very strange happens, that once you start getting really close to human but not quite human, we say, ooh, yuck. Oh, that's disturbing. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen pictures of robots that look like humans. They have kind of a plasticky face. And you look at it, and at first, you know, first glance, you might think, oh, that's a person. But then you look at it again, and there's just there's something off. And you're not really able to put your finger on it, but it, it's not quite right. Okay, that is the uncanny valley. Okay, so... We start with a lot of warmth. The more and more similar they get to us, the warmer and warmer we feel, the more and more that we like them. However, when they get really close to us, when they look just like us but they're just a little bit off, then we feel revulsion. We don't like them. They're creepy. Okay? Um, now, how this relates to zombies is that zombies are just like us as well. They once were us. But they're not quite us. Right? So although they're human, they're very human-like, there's something off about them. And if you were to not look at their face, you could see something was off maybe by how they move about. However, once you look at their face, what is the thing that distinguishes a zombie in almost all zombie movies besides maybe the slack jaw? Rotting flesh, absolutely, but not all of them have rotting flesh. So when they first turn... Their flesh isn't rotting yet, right? Yeah. It's their eyes. It's their eyes, you guys. And that's what the research has shown. People who have looked into the uncanny valley have shown that um, it's the eyes. The eyes are the key. So if the eyes are off, we feel creeped out. Okay? We feel like, ooh, we feel revulsion instead of warmth. And I think that zombies in particular trigger that in us more than other monsters because they're so similar to us, just a little different, and it's in the eyes. Oh, very interesting. Thanks, Laura. Okay, so kind of we kind of talked a little bit more futuristic ideas. Now we're going to dig a little bit back into the past, and I'd like to ask you, um, Professor Shizas, how might you relate the story, the zombie story, to the historical treatment of psychiatric patients? Thank you, Amy. Let me, first, let me first say that psychiatric patients are not zombies and that people who have mental illness or mental disorders are not zombies. But there's a relation between how people who became zombies were treated in the book and how people with mental disorders thousands of years ago were treated. So in the book, family members and society had no idea what to do with people that got stricken with the zombie virus. They rounded them up. They threw them in the ocean. They put them in deserted ships. They left them alone. And, and, and coincidentally, in the book, a lot of people got bitten by the zombies when they were swimming. 
so we didn't know what to do with them. And um, th- in the story, this one doctor gets called to a house with a sick son who I guess got stricken with the zombie virus. And, and the, the family had bound him up in, with tape and had the hands, you know, bound together. The mouth was gagged so he couldn't move around and he couldn't bite. And then the doctor says, you know, I kind of noticed that around town. People were bound up. People, I would see people in back seats of cars bound up in the trunks. They would be making noise. And so obviously people had no idea what to do with the zombies. I mean, it's my family member. You know, I, I got to do something with them. So when you think about a long time ago, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago even, people treated those with the mental disorder pretty badly. They didn't understand them. They didn't understand them, much like people didn't understand zombies. I mean, in the book, there was no antidote. There was no treatment, no zombie rehab. There wasn't anything. And maybe if they were real, maybe if zombies were real, maybe after 100 years we would find something to help them with. I think in the movie, though, isn't there an antidote in the movie? I think there is. In the book, there wasn't. Um, So, like I said, a really long time ago, ancient historians... I mean, there was no good treatment for it. It wasn't really until the 1950s where medicines really came to help. But in in the ancient times, people, if you you had a mental disorder, or what we think today is a mental disorder, people thought you were possessed by demons. And they would put holes in your skull to let the demons out. Or they would do lobotomies. They would do hot and cold baths. They They would bound them, torture them, chain them, put them in boxes, beat them, do exorcisms, all kinds of stuff. And so... I would say maybe about a couple hundred years ago, they started creating mental hospitals where people were just put in and in really poor living conditions. And so they were like suppositories or repositories for, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, close enough, exactly. It was pretty filthy, I guess. Uh, so, but really, it wasn't until the 1950s where medicines came out and people started living in the community. So when you think about how people treat zombies you know, again, we just didn't know what to do with them. I think a long time ago, people didn't know what to do with people that had mental disorders either. But as I was reading the book, it reminded me of the two. And so, uh, so maybe if zombies were real, maybe there would be rehab for them too. A lobotomy, uh, well, I guess it removes one of the lobes of the brain. Scrambles it. It's scrambled. it yeah, yeah, it scrambles the lobes yeah. of the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. And there the person go. who developed it got a Nobel Prize for right. it. Right. However, the personality wasn't the same. Yeah. yeah. I thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It it goes in through uh, the eyes, and um, you just put in. They're like knitting needles, and you put them in. You scramble them around, and you pull them out. It was an outpatient procedure, and for some people, um, it did little. Maybe the needles didn't go in far enough. For other people, it completely destroyed their lives. And, and interestingly. A long time ago, um, people thought that individuals became mentally ill from this thing called the wolf spider, which is a tarantula today. Uh, and then, but and in the book, you get the zombie virus by being bitten. So I mean, there's some comparisons uh, and, and kind of how, how sometimes we don't have empathy for people we don't understand. I'm sure zombies are nice. I'm sure that you, if you help them. <laughs> Unfortunately, most movies don't yeah, no. don't bring out that side no, of that. I know, I know. But um, okay, thank you. Uh, so you kind of talked about the historical treatment and psychiatric patients and what was going on, and so this ties into um, a question for Professor Baker. 
what kinds of morality issues are brought up with these with these situations? Okay. Um, first, let me admit that. Uh, with the private knowledge I have of myself, I should serve as nobody's moral compass. Um, but having said that, um, I can't speak about the judgments we make, uh, the moral judgments or, or the behaviors of morality. Uh, and in doing this, because I should serve as nobody's moral compass, I'm going to take it from a consumer psychology approach and kind of let you guys come to your own conclusions. You might be familiar with uh, Lawrence Kohlberg or Carol Gilligan's theory, but uh, I'm not going to really touch those, but they definitely apply here on many levels. Um, but I want to mention uh, a, uh, one of my students actually introduced me to this theorist uh, a couple years ago, Rebecca Sachs. And um, she uh, and her group, uh, and I think she was a grad student at MIT at the time, she um, found there was a part of the brain that doesn't really do a whole lot except help us engage in theory of mind, right? Helps us infer the mental states of others, right? Otherwise, it's not active, but when I'm thinking about what you're thinking about, then it's highly active. Um, and just for those taking notes at home, it's called the RTPJ, the right tem um, temporal parietal uh, junction, okay? Now, in the book, not the movie, uh, they were selling a rabies vaccine because it was called um, it wasn't zombieism right it was it was called African rabies so they they knew it was zombieism but they decided to sell this vaccine anyways though they knew it wasn't all along now organizations and businesses market to emotions um, this is explicitly stated in the book um, and I used to work in the industry and would agree with it is that we're not selling products and services but we're selling emotions now if you juxtapose any product or service next to the emotion we can't help but draw some type of relationship between the two and think like oh this must mean I feel that way or that service is going to do that for me it's not the activity itself it's the emotion that's being sold now um, and, and I think the uh, vaccine is called um, phalanx or something like that in the book. Now, again, this case, they were not selling a product. They were selling fear, as, uh, as it's written in the book. They were selling the idea of the idea, right? If I may, you know, I would kind of equate that to, like, the lottery. You know, odds are you're not going to win. Any individual is going to win it. But you buy the ticket for the right to dream. Right, you know, I can now spend the day thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to quit my job? Who am I going to help out? Whatever it is, I'm going to be a millionaire. <clears throat> so you're selling that idea. Now, there's a few commercials that I really like, and I was thinking about showing them, but you know, we, I didn't ask for the tech to be set up for it. But one of them is a uh, BMW commercial, and it's called Opportunity Knocks. If you wanted to actually look at it and seek it out, and this spot focuses on missed opportunities. Now, it uh, opens like a guy's uh, breaking up with his high school girlfriend because she's kind of nerdy looking, and then later sees her on the TV, and she's this uh, uh, attractive supermodel who makes the cover of a magazine. Um, his buddy tries to get him in on the ground floor of um, a, a Twitter, but uh, he, quote-unquote, just doesn't get the whole 140-character thing. Um, and then he's looking at this BMW, and he's like, are you going to take it? And this guy's reflecting all those things that I've missed. And he's like, I'll take it. I'm not going to miss out on this one, as the, you know, at least what I can think about what's going on in his mind. And he goes ahead and buys it. So we're selling the idea, don't, um, don't miss out on this opportunity. Don't make the same mistakes like you're always used to. If anyone's seen the TurboTax commercial that's out there, um, any, po any positive words that you associate doing taxes with? Money. Okay. You know, hopefully if you don't owe it, I guess, right? Right? 
well, they're telling you it's the story of your life, and your life is exciting, and you should do this type of thing, right? And, you know, if I go to protect, it'll demystify my life, and it'll make it exciting. So this is, I'm buying the prevention against the fear and anxiety that taxes cause, right? So is this... Is this wrong? You know, are we allowed to sell these things? If I, if I may, just you know, a couple minutes here. I'm going to give you a couple scenarios. And uh, by show of hands, you let me know if you think it's morally okay. So um, kind of relating it back to the book. The trusted pharmaceutical company, let's call him Tom. The pharmaceutical Tom knows it's zombieism, right? Not African rabies. Even though the government is calling it that to the public. So pharmaceutical Tom knows it won't work at all. But he also knows it won't directly kill anybody. You have to get bitten by a zombie to die. So he sells it as protection for something he knows it does not protect against. Is this morally okay? Good. That's what you'd like to see. All right. Um, should he be blamed? How much blame? So, like, bring it to a present day. Would he, if there's a class action lawsuit against him and they found out he did this, would there be uh, grounds for at least a, a lawsuit? Okay. Sounds good. Scenario two. Trusted pharmaceutical Tom does not know it's zombieism. Thinks it's African rabies like everyone is saying. He sells the rabies vaccine for protection. The rabies vaccine doesn't work because it's not rabies, it's zombieism. It doesn't kill anybody directly still because you still have to be bitten. By show of hands, is this morally okay? A few more, yeah? Okay. Now, why is this one okay? And some of us are like, oh, I don't know if I should raise my hand right now or not. But, um, you know, what happened in the real world is exactly the same thing in both scenarios. Huh. <clears throat> right? But we think the second one is somewhat okay. Because we, that's kind of how we're accustomed to. If I don't know the information and I go ahead, like, like at one point, cigarettes weren't bad for you. So it was okay for a time to sell cigarettes. But once I know they're bad, I should stop selling them, right? There's some responsibility that we have here. And that's the moral issue. It's like if we're... If I'm selling you something, you know, commercially or not, that I know is not achievable by this product, is that okay? Is there some responsibility for me? And like I said, I'm no, no one's moral compass, so I'll leave that for you to decide. Um, and just going back to the last thing, um, the goal of, uh, of, of those that we depended on in the book, they didn't really have our best interest in mind. They had the interest of preserving things as they are, right? And this is all to avoid what they called the Great Panic, which led to the death of many people, and had they acknowledged what was going on, people had the chance for survival, but we missed that window. All right. So the intentions were good, but in the end, or maybe good, depending on your perspective, but in the end, the same thing happened. People ended up dying. So those are the moral issues. Okay. Thank you, Mitch. Some interesting ideas to think more about. Um, we'd like to talk a little bit about the cultural impact of zombies. So Professor Shim, could you talk a little bit about the symbolic nature of zombies in our culture and perhaps what kinds of cultural differences we might see in response to a zombie outbreak. Okay. Uh, before I talk about the cultural differences and the cultural perspectives, is zombie real? Is zombie, is there, is, is zombie real threat to our lives? No. Hope not. No? Is it only in a pop culture like movie and the books and, you know, film? What is it? Why we are so fascinated by this zombie phenomenon? So, yes. Okay. Uh huh. However, the 
Maybe you wanna, I know, see my friend Kelly here. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh, okay. Mm -hmm. Excitement. Uh, okay, yeah, excitement in our lives, okay. Yes, actually while I prepared this panel, I read uh, the recent current articles and I found out the very interesting uh, the cultural explanation, uh, so-called the symbolism of zombie, where zombie uh, is like uh, something like beyond your control, right? It's uncontrollable thing, make you feel powerless and hopeless, right? So zombie is not necessarily human figure uh, that something tried to kill you. So, you know, somebody, some uh, uh, the literature showed that, I'm going to look at this one, it's uh, maybe zombies represent some of like a, a global catastrophe, such as, like, you know, that causes a social phobia or chaos, uh, age, age uh, I mean age. Okay, you know, so AIDS, a uh, nuclear bomb, how about that? Or a war, uh, uh, economic collapse, uh, even hurricane, earthquakes, even poverty. You know, poverty uh, that make you feel uncontrol uncontrollable, make you feel powerless and, uh, you know, hopeless. Those can be uh, the contemporary symbol of a zombie, right? So we are infected by zombie culturally, so it's beyond movie, it's beyond the books. So what do you think about the cultural implication? And then I also found out that uh, this uh, metaphor of a zombie is interpreted differently by culture. So I found out, uh, you know, in, in uh, American uh, culture, it's a more Western cultures have a uh, you know, the, the extreme reaction toward the fear of death. But uh, when I read the article, in the Mexican culture, maybe you are familiar with the Mexico culture, uh, is, uh, fear of death is no, you know, no more fear, you know. Uh, they even have a people uh, in Mexico, they have a picnics in graveyard, uh, want to be close to their dead family, and then they sing and dance you know, and so it's a death is a part of their lives, uh, not really uh, fear of death, okay, something, you know, you want to avoid with. How about in uh, Af West Africa, a zombie, they call it the vodun, uh, I don't know how to pronounce, it's like meaning of something witch or devil, it's part of a human soul, so they sometimes deal with it, or, not, or even like, a, you know, uh, they sell that uh, the zombie kind of a vodun soul for luck or healing, okay? So it's interesting, you know, the cultural approach. Okay, uh, a couple more. In uh, China, uh, zombie symbol is called, uh, 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 I don't know how to pronounce it, but Jiangxi. Uh, Jiangxi is like something like a hopping vampire, you know, the eat you up. Uh, but they uh, interpret that uh, Jiangxi is moving around your life, sometimes hurt you, sometimes give you luck. And then, you know, it's related to death, but it's not like an object of fear, something you have to deal with it with your life. So it's very different, you know, the perspective. Uh, and then lastly, in Haiti, uh, the, uh, the Haiti, they entertain 
zombie, you know, sometimes, and then maybe uh, the frightening, you know, to people. And that is like uh, in their folktale. So uh, with the tales of what they call a voodoo or cannibalism, it's like a zombie symbol. Uh, it's they practice of eating young children, uh, digging up a freshly buried corpse, uh, for brutal uh, ceremonies of food. So it's like a scary or, uh, you know, the fear. Uh, and yet, they're not so much scared about that zombie. You know, it's not exactly the name of a zombie, but zombie-like a symbol. So uh, every I found out that every culture uh, exercise or interpret a zombie uh, very differently, you know, so it's like a cultural perspective. So uh, I think it's a fascinating. It's, this is like modern uh, tempora- contemporary interpretation of a zombie, okay? Thank you, Professor Shim. Um, you know what, I think we're probably going to open it up for questions now. So um, what kinds of questions do you guys have? Okay, let me come over there really quickly. What did, what did you guys think about the, uh, was it the incident in Florida when that dude ate that other dude's face? Because he was on bath salts because I freaked out. And I was like, it's going down tonight. So, <laughs> like, I don't know what that meant, but uh, I was kind of scared. And I looked up, I even looked up bath salts because I thought that bath salts made zombies. And uh, I don't know, what you guys like, what kind of, what does that do? Does bath salts really make you eat people's faces? Or? It took a lot to kill him, too, because I saw they like, shot him like 16 times. And he's skinnier than me. So uh, it freaked me out a little bit. Uh, I was scared. You know, um, different drugs can cause psychosis. Thank you. Thank you. And um, psychosis is a split from reality. So when you are psychotic, when you're having a psychotic episode, um, you believe things that are not true. You believe things that are not real. Um, and people have done absolutely horrendous things to themselves and to other people when they are psychotic. Um, sometimes psychosis comes from a mental illness that you've been born with or, you know, a, a predisposition to mental illness triggered by something in the environment. Um, but sometimes psychosis can be caused by other things like drugs. Um, and there are plenty of drugs out there that can trigger psychotic episodes and can, can make people hear things that, you know, are not real and hear, maybe hear people telling them to do things. Um, so I, I'm guessing that that's what the situation was. He probably felt threatened, too, and probably was trying to protect himself, <coughs> which is what I would imagine, too. And absolutely with psychosis, that's, that, that's what I would guess. Well, he maybe thought that the guy was trying to attack him, and this is the way he was going to retaliate. Or perhaps he was hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Other questions? Anybody, Scott? Yes, psychosis can give people uh, a a strong jolt of the epinephrine and norepinephrine, and people have done all kinds of things when when they have those chemicals kind of running through their bodies. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen really small people, uh, you know, small framed at least, uh, take down a couple of individuals. And, I mean, so sometimes psychosis or, or manic episodes can cause that. 
<laughs> I think we'd probably recommend not to do the bath salt. Yeah, yeah, don't. It's for so it's proven that. Well, yeah. So is it proven that you can become stronger if you're like under attack or whatever, like an adrenaline rush? You could become like twice as strong as you. I don't know about twice as strong, yet. but but at least for a little bit. So it is probable. Not superhuman. I mean, you're still within the confines of your sure. body, but you're maximizing your sure. abilities. You know, I don't know. I mean, can I lift the car to to? I don't think I can. But I could probably take a few people down to get myself into a safe place where I normally can't. Any other questions? I kind of want to be in the middle here so I can see people. We have a question up here. I guess I have a question. Um, What do you think Max Brooks? thought about writing this book uh, in today's time, and why um, the English um, panel picked that book for us to read. (laughs) That's a good question. I know. I I mean, I think that, um, you know, every generation seems to have its monster, you know, and I think before zombies, it was vampires. Um, I, I think that um, when, you know, a, a monster becomes popular in a, in a particular generation, a particular time, I think that there's some kind of cultural link to it. Um, and, you know, it depends on how much you want to read into it. Um, but I, you know, I kind of see a connection um, between zombies with, uh, again, kind of going back to that fixation on technology. You know, we're, we're, our lives are getting dominated by technology today. Um, and I think sometimes with technology, we think less and less, and we let the technology think more and more. And I think that there is a fear among some people um, that, you know, we're, we're going to lose our capacity to think through situations and that, um, you know, we may be coming zombie-like ourselves, not in the way of, you know, eating other people, but just in the way of not processing and not thinking things through and letting other things take over our lives, not being an independent, self-driven force. Do you think the book is more like a warning for... So you think the book is more like a, a warning for all of us, especially young generation, to kind of look up at the back signs and kind of try to live more simple and think about it, what would actually happen if a disaster will happen, teach us maybe more uh, what we should do and how should we prepare that we have to be uh, maybe knowledgeable that that possibly can happen even if it's so unreal, that zombies unreal and it's like a symbol I agree totally with it. I think it is a symbol of a lot of uh, things culturally and, um, you know, teaches us definitely. But I still think, do you think this is more like the book is more of a warning or it's supposed to teach us to be prepared or just to... I think so. No. Yeah, that okay. reminds me... Oh, sorry. Okay. That reminds me of the article I read, uh, you know, the... Uh, couple of days ago, uh, it relates to symbolism, you know, so uh, why, you know, again, why people have a fear about the zombie, because it's beyond your control, make you feel powerless and helpless, so, so anything make you feel powerless, helpless, and have a fear and make anxious could be, 
the uh, the zombie-like thing, you know. So, uh, the, for example, technology. You know, the, the young people is fascinated by using technology, and then some people is without the phone, without iPhone or smartphone, they get anxious, right? You know, so they're losing uh, control over technology. So technology could be a zombie, and they're going to eat you up, right? So uh, then they're going to be like a, you know, zombie. So it's a lot of things like, uh, you know, symbolic things. So I don't know about the, you know, book, uh, represent that or, you know, implicate that, but we can certainly interpret that as a zombie, you know, as a warning. You've got to deal with it or you're going to uh, eat by that. You know, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, as a as a fan of literature, I would never want to take away what you. I mean, I think the intent of any good piece of literature is that we can project different things into it. So I, I would not want to take away what you're reading into the book, and I think that's very appropriate. Um, I don't think Max Brooks was attempting to prognosticate the future like a 1984 Brave New World was attempting to kind of do. But yeah, I definitely see many of the uh, this could serve as a metaphor for many things of you know being more actively participating in our own lives and being aware of the present and stuff like that, for sure. Have you heard about caterpillar fungus? Caterpillar fungus? Have you heard about caterpillar fungus? I have not heard about caterpillar fungus. I'm interested. Tell us. It's a type of fungus that seems to infect insects. Hmm. Insects bite you? And then try to kill you? No. <laughs> well, for some reason, the spores that go inside the insect. Uh, so the spores that go inside the insect tend to cause the infection. Yeah. It's you know pretty similar, pretty similar to what we're looking at here. I guess there's a lot of infections that could, yeah. you know, mirror the zombie infections. Mm -hmm. The insect seems to go in. Really. Interesting. Okay. In okay. Some several weeks or so. So it takes time. And it could take time for zombies, too, to become infected. I think Bex Brooks may have also been thinking, I mean, you know. There's some I, sort of fungus thing growing out of its head. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for that thought. And in one way, that another colony of ants were prepared, one would, <coughs> one would carry the infected ants out of the colony. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting idea. We'd probably have to put something in place to make sure that there's some insect control, I would imagine. <laughs> but no, thank you. We had, uh, yeah. Yeah. And we have a couple over here as well. Um, just real quick, um, when you were talking about the, um, like the cultural symbolism, mm -hmm. like why do you think it is, with America being so multicultural, that it is that we have such a narrow view of death? Like, and especially, like, because our fascination, I would guess, with zombies is kind of something to help us deal with death. It's like life after death. Why do you think, as Americans, we are so fearful of that? And um, I don't know if that has anything to do with the book, but... Very interesting question. I, uh, well, I, I don't have an answer. I don't. Uh, maybe the American or Western culture is not necessarily have a narrow viewpoint. You know, just simply 
I don't know, you know, maybe if I go back to Freud perspective, you know, the, the fear of death is maybe embedded in our, you know, deep inside, like unconsciously. Uh, I don't know, in the Eastern or other culture does not have that unconscious feeling. So, uh, I don't know, it's like a different perspective, I, I believe, you know, and then a different interpretation by, you know, different cultures. So, maybe we know, but, uh, not necessarily like a, a uh, the narrow perspective or bigger perspective, how you look at or interpret uh, the zombie is make a different, you know, yeah, symbolism. But with America being so, like, d- diverse, why do you think we've kept that narrow hmm. viewpoint or different viewpoint with all these other cultures? Um, Coming in, why is it that we've got yeah, that's, that? that's a good point. I mean, although I don't know if I could speak for all Americans, though. Yeah. I, I don't think we can say that, you know, on the majority. I think, you know, there's a lot of cultures here. And, I mean, depending on one's culture, one's religion, on one's philosophy of life, their, you know, kind of their, their psychology of life. Mm-hmm. I, don't think, I don't think I could say everyone has a narrow mind uh, about death. I know the existentialists accept it. It's part of life. It's what's going to happen to us, and we should live our life to the fullest to do it. Uh, Certain religions believe that, you know, we're going to have an afterlife, and many cultures communicate with people that are dead, so they don't think that they're really truly gone. They're always with us. Other people think, that's it. Once we're done, we're in the ground, and that's that. So I think it depends. So I think when you look at America as a a whole, um, maybe we have to look culturally that's what I would say. We have one more uh, quick answer to that question for you, Tiffany. Hi. My thought with that question is that maybe it's just that in the United States we're so diverse that we don't have one unified uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to in other countries, there's probably less diversity, which means there's more unity regarding religious beliefs <coughs> or cultural background, and therefore the belief. Mm-hmm. in the meaning of the mm-hmm. zombie symbol or the uh, the reaction to the zombie mm-hmm. is one. And so it, it dominates the culture. It comes out very clearly. As opposed here, it could be multiple because of our multiple cultures. Great point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about um, when you were talking about the um, robots with the eyes and how we find that creepy and stuff and how the zombies... They have like in like something wrong with their eyes. Do you think another thing that we like when we look into the eyes, like the window of the soul, and we check and see if someone is alive through our eyes? Do you think one of the fascinations that Americans or people have with zombies is because we are confronted with death? Like it's like this is our way of like like com- like having being face to face with death. So that the eyes, what you're asking is, do I think that the eyes are kind of the key to whether the person is alive or dead? Yeah, because, like, without life in the eyes, it's basically like you're a dressed corpse. Then that's how you can tell that the person is dead. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think that that is, you know, people talk about the eyes as the windows to the soul. And when you talk about um, body language and... You know, um, what do we pay attention to when we're talking to another person? It can be very uncomfortable to speak to another person without being able to see their eyes. Have you guys ever spoken to someone for an extended period who's wearing, like, the reflective glasses? 
You know, you can't see their eyes. You can see their face, but you can't see their eyes. There's something, um, yeah, there's something unsettling about not being able to see their eyes. So I think we read a lot into people's intentions, you know, what they're feeling um, when we look at their eyes. And so when their eyes don't look real or when their eyes look like there's something wrong with it, um, I think that that in and of itself is settling. But I also, I agree with you. I think that that makes sense that um, there is a connection there with death as well. You know, to tell whether or not someone is alive or dead, you would not be able to tell by just looking at the rest of their body. Really, you can just tell from their eyes. So I think that is part of the fascination that we have with zombies as well, um, just in general, um, that kind of thin line between life and death, you know, life after death. So... Run over here. Person. Are there um, are there any physical or psychological, um, I, I guess like uh, ways of damaging or distinctions between humans and zombies, like you mentioned with the amygdala and the fear response? So, like how they wouldn't, you know, be intimidated by, you know, just guards and stuff, as you mentioned with um, like coming up the the L ramp where, you know, a human being would have that, you know, fear. Well, I think there's certainly some dysregulation in many of the brain parts. Uh, Professor uh, Lawson Collins and I were just talking about, you know, front, the, front, the frontal lobe and the frontal cortex, which gives us a lot of our abilities to have higher level thoughts, judgments, decisions, memories, and whatnot. So... And then there's this part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is kind of like the regulator between the amygdala and your <laughs> frontal cortex. Um, so I think a zombie probably does not have that part either because, you know, their amygdala, while it, while it handles fear, it also handles aggression too. So I think, I think they probably have, I would say, I mean, again, zombies aren't real. And... <laughs> You know, theoretically speaking, if we did see a zombie, I would imagine there's probably some dysregulation in the frontal cortex to make decisions. And they're probably acting on base emotions because they don't have those filters. You know, just one step, I don't necessarily even... Uh, I think the main differential would be the, the, that there is no mind, if you will. There's no consciousness. There's, there's no sense of who I am or, or the memory of who I was and the personality behind the zombie. Zombies are one thing. They're directed by this one motivation of simply survival, eating, people make as many of us as we can. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, maybe it's a metaphor for the uh, population boom. You know, I mean, it, it took us all of humanity, right, all of, all of, the, all of the time um, to get to three and a half billion people. And then it took us only 50 years to double that. You know, so maybe it's a metaphor for the, the population boom that, that's taken place and sustainability of that. But I think the main differential is the idea of um, that there really is no personality behind the zombies. There is no thought action except survival. I guess a better way of wording it um, would be, are, are there any ways that, you know, human beings become zombie-like in, in, that, in that sake, in terms of, you know, even, like, uh, psychologically? Hmm. No, I, I think the, I mean, I think the closest to that that you could come was the, the first question that we had about psychosis. Um, you know, the vast majority of people who have psychosis um, do not go out and eat other people, Okay. So that's, that's extremely rare, um, but I think that that would be the closest that you could come is someone who 
was completely out of touch with reality. Um, I don't know of any disorder that would wipe out the entire frontal lobe, no. which is what you would really need to do to, to be zombie-like. Right. Um, I think in The Walking Dead, um, if anybody's a fan of The Walking Dead, uh, they had an episode where they were at the CDC and um, they had actually done a brain scan of someone who was turning. And what happened was that the frontal lobe, the entire... Um, the entire frontal lobe was completely shut off. And so the, the zombie was just functioning based on um, survival, you know, based on the hindbrain, just like, um, just like um, Dr. Baker was talking about, just the part of the brain that focuses on uh, survival and eating. And, and the soul really is the frontal cortex. That's your content. I mean, that's where all your thoughts come in. Yeah. We've got one just, question in the back here. Just to clarify, I'm not Dr. Baker, ABD, doc, ABD uh, Baker, so thank you. So, yeah. All but dissertation. So, no, thank you. Um, so piggybacking off of the whole eating people thing, why is cannibalism frowned upon, I guess? Well, uh, like we can, can you repeat the question again? A little bit louder. Uh, piggybacking off of eating people and everything, I, I wonder um, why is cannibalism frowned upon? Not not that I'm advocating it or anything. <laughs> That's um, a good but question. Like, but you, we, uh, we talk about this in hypothetical situations, like, oh, well, if, if it came down to it, would you eat somebody? And we, there's still people that would say, no, I, would, I wouldn't ever. Why, why is it frowned upon? So much? Maslow would, would, would disagree. He would say, you will do everything you can <laughs> yeah. not to. Because we, we relate, you know, of course, humans with life and, you know, quality and, and you know, and spirituality and whatnot. So um, why is it frowned upon? I don't know. Um, there are a few cultures that um, did practice cannibalism. I, I just heard um, an extended story about this the other day. And um, there was uh, an island where they were, the latest um, case of cannibalism was in the 1970s or 1980s. Um, and they said that the thing that um, brought all of the cultures together that did practice cannibalism um, was a lack of food. So although, you know, most people are not going to turn to cannibalism when there is a lack of food, the cultures that historically have engaged in cannibalism were cultures where they were located where there was very little food there to begin with. Um, and so it became a part of their culture over time, potentially in order to supplement their diet. Um, the culture that they had been focusing on in the story um, was located in a swampy region, and there was almost no protein that was available in, in their environment. And they were very isolated from other environments, and cannibalism had become a part of their culture and their religion over thousands of years, perhaps part, in part you know, due to their environment, due to the lack of protein. Okay, thank you. We have time for one last question. How do you guys think uh, children would react to a hypothetical zombie apocalypse? Like, would it be possible that an eight-year-old could understand what's going on and be trained to, like, protect themselves to kill these zombies? I'm going to say something really quick. I know a lot of people are leaving, and then I'll leave it to everybody else. But I actually think children might fare better than a lot of adults, um, and that's because I think a lot of adults rely on schemas that they have developed over, you know, 
um, decades. You know, and, and we adults, we tend to like to do the same thing again and again and again. We tend to be a little bit more closed to considering new options and new possibilities, whereas I think children are, are better able, they're, you know, more programmed to be open to different possibilities. I think they might recognize something maybe before some of the adults around them. Um, they have shown that, that very young children are able to, for example, survive in the wild for long periods of time, whereas once you get a little older, the survival rate goes down. And it's because it, I think the younger children are just more adaptable. I'm not sure if you guys... No, time's sake. Okay. I think so. I think kids would be scared, certainly, too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, everybody, for coming today. Appreciate all your panelists Thanks, here. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.